Might the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change be understating the severity of human-induced climate change? How severely are the poles being impacted by global warming, and how will melting Arctic ice impact the world's climate? What are the consequences of the melting of glacial ice? How significant is the damage to Earth's oceans, and what are some of the broader impacts on the Earth's ecosystems? What role has humanity's disconnect from the natural world had on the escalating threat to life on our world posed by anthropogenic climate change? On this week's Global Research News Hour, on the occasion of a week of worldwide demonstrations for climate action, we devote our program to a look at the ongoing climate crisis with two analysts, Paul Beckwith, a University of Ottawa-based climate system scientist and researcher, and Dar Jamail, independent journalist and author of a recent book on climate change's impacts in flashpoints around the globe. On this week's program, the end of ice and other threats to the planet, talking climate change, with Paul Beckwith and Dar Jamail. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 11th, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Akin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the traditional territory of the Nikiowak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The success of the 9-11 Lawyers Committee in obtaining the consent of the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York to, quote, comply with the provisions of 18 U.S.C. 3332, unquote, which requires the convening of a federal grand jury to examine the unexamined 9-11 evidence, has impressed True Publica as no U.S. attorney would convene a grand jury on the basis of a conspiracy theory. Clearly, compelling evidence has been presented to the U.S. attorney. Obviously, Washington expects the Justice Department to escape from the bind into which it has been put by the Lawyers' Committee and escape that the prostitute media will aid and abet. Nevertheless, the escape will likely reinforce the public's view that the government is afraid of the evidence and is no more likely to follow it than in the case of President Kennedy's assassination, Robert Kennedy's assassination, the Israeli attack on the USS Liberty, and a large number of other officially covered up crimes. More and more people will come to realize that ad hominem name-calling is not an acceptable response to evidence. That comes from the article, A Majority of Americans Do Not Believe the Official 9-11 Story, by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, post-January 9th, originally published on the author's blog site, Paul Craig Roberts, Institute for Political Economy. Canadian and Italian tourists feared kidnapped in Burkina Faso was the recent headline in the BBC, a day after clashes there claimed 46 lives. The BBC didn't cover the clashes online, nor did they cover a terrorist attack there a few days prior, or the country's trade deals with China. If the tragic events had happened in Europe, though, the media would have been all over it. 
We see similar scenarios with the recent media coverage of tourists robbed in Brazil. Just as a president who is arguably more racist, sexist, and homophobic than Trump has taken power, yes, it's possible, of a tourist murdered in Morocco and the killings in a Mexican tourist resort. From deprioritizing the lives of locals in poor countries to downplaying global inequality, racism, and condescension, the way Western news agencies do international news is deeply harmful. That comes from the article, Everything the Western Mainstream Media Outlets Get Wrong When Covering Poor Countries, by Tamara Pearson, post-January 9th. Given what we already know about the White Helmet's involvement in organ harvesting, kidnapping, thievery, fake news, staged rescues, and assorted terrorist activities, their anticipated involvement in preparations for yet another false flag attack is credible. As Canadians, we must demand an end to our government's war on Syria. Canada should open its embassy in Syria and resume diplomatic relations. Furthermore, Canada should leave NATO. And Canada must be held to account for the crimes that it has committed against the sovereign nation of Syria and for the crimes that it continues to commit against the sovereign nation of Syria. That comes from the article, The War on Syria, Are the White Helmets Preparing Another Chemical Weapons False Flag? by Mark Taliano, posted January 9th. It is time for citizens in the democracies of Europe and North America to openly discuss the global spiral of violence which we currently are in. Of course, not only democracies are driving this spiral of violence, but it seems important to me that we hear talk openly about the Western share in this escalation. The crimes of the NATO countries must be analyzed honestly so that the necessary consequences can be drawn from them. The French and British illegal attack on Egypt in 1956, France's illegal terrorist attack on the Greenpeace ship in 1985, and the American illegal attack on Syria in 2017 clearly demonstrate that democracies are also driving this spiral of violence. That comes from the article War Criminals at Large by Dr. Danielle Ganser, post-January 9th, translated by Terj Malloy from an article in Rubicon. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. This is Michael Welch, host and producer of the Global Research News Hour. As this program goes live to air on Friday, January the 11th, there's a youth climate action taking place uh, here in Winnipeg, Manitoba, on Treaty 1 territory. Uh, Youth are uh, cutting classes and have gathered at our province's uh, political hub, the Manitoba Legislative Building, uh, inspired by the Swedish activist Greta Thunberg. They are demanding leadership. On, uh, of our elected representatives on climate. Uh, Nina Zhigic is uh, a student and a volunteer reporter with uh, host radio station CKUW 95.9 FM. She's speaking to us from the site. Nina, thanks so much for joining us. Hi! <laughs> so tell us what's happening right there at the ledge this afternoon. So right now there's a lot of kids out here um, from all, all age groups. We have quite a few high schools, a few middle schools, and a lot of littler kids, all with signs and different things to say. Everybody's got their own voice. People have come out here. They really want uh, the Canadian government to recognize and to uh, 
you know, uh, make more action to uh, to help decarbonize the planet and to to, to really um, hear our voices and hear the youth uh, because we have a lot to say. There is, like I said, a lot of people out here, and they're doing some speeches. There are some speakers, and I believe there um, will be some kids speaking as well. Okay. Um, so the, do, what, what specifically, uh, what are people telling you, the, the people that you've been talking to so far, about why well, they're there? Um, I spoke to a few high school students and a few younger students, and um, a lot of them were saying that they're worried that uh, the lasting effects will Will, will come soon, and they're, they're scared that uh, nobody's doing anything, and that they're, they're scared that a lot of people, that the government isn't making enough effort to change what's currently going on. So, yeah, that's what I got mostly from, from, from the students. Okay. Do, do they have any, do you know of any, do they have any specific demands of what they want the government to do? Um, I didn't hear too much. I heard a lot about um, uh, going green, using more uh, using more solar solar energy instead of uh, using coal and uh, just being more sustainable and working more on uh, sustainable energy than than other other sources. Okay, so uh, how, about how many people did you say they're there? Uh, there seems to be right now about fifty, maybe maybe 50. kids total. There's a lot. There's a lot of people out here. Okay. And they're outside right now. Yes, right now we're on the the front steps of the ledge. Okay, and so uh, just uh, they're they're planning to. Uh, to go in a little bit later and uh yeah the plans are to go in and uh deliver a message inside and then uh start to talk a little bit about our plans for uh february 1st so the next uh friday uh to do to do another another rally of some sort so we're we're gonna plan out something new okay now is this action open to the general public or is it just students uh it's open to the general public but it's completely youth-led so it's all kids out here, mostly kids rallying, and it's really just. <laughs> sorry, they're coughing. There's, uh, it's really mostly a uh, gathering to help uh, help the government hear the youth. Okay, Nina, thanks so much for that report. Yeah, no problem. That was Nina Zhigic. She is CKW's youth climate correspondent, speaking to us from the Manitoba Legislative Building. So listen for the CKW News Team's full report on the youth climate uh, action. Uh, the morning during the news morning news show, People of Interest, it airs uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday from eight to nine a.m. on CKW ninety five point nine FM in Winnipeg. Now, the urgent concerns about climate change are not restricted to youth. Leading scientists have also been ringing the alarm bells. Prepared by leading researchers from around the world, the 2018 report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, was delivered to governments, policymakers, and individuals in Korea on Monday, October 8th. And it warns that the world has already warmed by 1 degree Celsius since the middle of the 19th century and could reach 1.5 degrees Celsius before the middle of this century at the current rate of warming. Earlier today, I had a chance to speak to Paul Beckwith. He's a climate system scientist uh, and part-time professor and instructor based at the University of Ottawa. He has a YouTube channel and a website that regularly updates the public on what he's calling a climate emergency. We started our conversation with a query about anything he thought was missing or understated in the most recent report. Thanks so much for joining us, Paul Beckwith. Thank you for having me. Paul, the IPCC's summary, from my understanding, is that the report 
these summaries coming from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, are actually quite conservative compared to some other assessments. I mean, there's a need to arrive at a consensus position, and that logically suggests that the most conservative positions will be the ones put forward into the public sphere. As of the end of 2018, based on your own research, the studies that you have access to, and the people you've been speaking to, what would you consider to be the most serious omissions from the IPCC's uh, most recent dispatch? Well, I think that the um, the most serious issues are that the many of there's there's many highly nonlinear feedbacks in the climate system, and um, these are difficult to model, and these are you know they give us um, lots of surprises. Like you know you read reports when something happens that well we really, scientists really didn't expect this, and scientists were amazed and. Things are happening much faster than, you know, expected and so on. So all of those things, I mean, it's very difficult to model a lot of these sort of tipping points. And, you know, I think one of the biggest things is that as the Arctic warming continues to accelerate, the jet streams are getting slower and wavier and causing all these extreme weather events that we see. And they're also leading directly to... Um, you know, even even greater warming of the Arctic, and then there's the risks from, you know, methane coming out of the permafrost and the seafloor sediments and things like that. And these aren't really um, these aren't really addressed, um, or you know, and it's like I said, it's difficult to have definitive numbers and say like it's very difficult to predict when you know a tipping point is passed and, and so on. But I think there needs to be more coverage on you know, the, the risks from the, the, these tipping points. And another thing is that the, you know, the when we talk about 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius, the original baseline was pre-industrial or set the year 1750. And in this report and in others, there's, more, there's a baseline that has shifted more to, you know, 1880 to 1910, that sort of time frame. And we've already had about 0.3 three degrees, 0.2 or 0.3 degrees Celsius of warming um, by, you know, with the baseline shift. So you can add, you know, those numbers, you know, 0.2 or 0.3 to the numbers of where we where we are at now. And, um, you know, I think that should be mentioned. It shouldn't just be glossed over and you can't just switch, switch the baseline. It doesn't sound very scientific to just switch the baseline, but it, it would appear the, the reason uh, they're doing that is, I guess, for public policy reasons? Or, or what are your yeah, thoughts? Um, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Um, you know, it definitely um, understates the, the temperature changes that have already occurred. And we're, we're much, you know, if they use the original baseline, we're much closer to the 1.5 and 2 degrees than, than uh, the report seems to indicate. So I guess those are some of my biggest issues. I mean, it's a very good report overall, you know, and it does address a lot of the issues, um, and, you know, it starts to wake people up and say, you know, the risks are really large. I mean, look, we're just over one degree Celsius of warming relative to, to uh, pre-industrial now, and look at all of the weather extremes that we're getting, the droughts, the flood, torrential rains, the floods, you know, weather disruption, things like that. 
Um, getting back to the, uh, the the situation at the polls, uh, could you give us give our listeners a primer on on how the Arctic ice cap uh, moderates Earth's climate and and what an ice free Arctic, which could very well happen by twenty twenty two if not sooner. What would such a, a blue ocean event at the North Pole mean for, for global weather patterns? Well, the, the ice, um, the, Ar- the Arctic sea ice, of course, changes in um, area um, throughout the year. You know, it forms it to cover most of the Arctic Ocean in the winter, and then in the summer it melts back. Um, so there's, there's a, 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 always a yearly cycle. And because the ice, of course, is um, highly reflective, it reflects a lot of the sunlight, and it keeps the Arctic cold. So when the when there's a loss of ice, and instead of the uh, white surface of the ice, you have the dark ocean water, which then absorbs the solar radiation in the summer. Then the um, so we're talking about the reflectivity or the albedo of the Arctic. So the, the with much less ice, there's there's much more darker areas of ocean exposed. So the Arctic is basically getting darker. And it's not just the sea ice. It's the snow cover on the land, especially in the spring. There's a lot less snow cover on the land. In fact, snow cover on the land has declined about 22%, 23% per, per decade, whereas in the Arctic sea ice has declined 12 or 13% per decade. So the Arctic overall is getting darker and getting much warmer now also because it's absorbing more solar energy also it takes a lot of energy to melt ice and the temperature remains close to the melting point so when there's less and less ice that energy is there to raise the temperature of the arctic as opposed to uh, melting the ice which it previously did so the ice really is important to keep the arctic cold and it's going very rapidly so with a blue ocean event the temperatures in the Arctic would significantly increase. Hmm. Yeah, I, I remember uh, reading something about latent heat. You know that the same yeah. amount of uh, amount of he- heat that it would take to me- to melt a certain amount of ice uh, from zero. You know, going yeah. from the that phase shift was the equivalent to, to raising the same amount of water, an enormous amount. So you'd yeah, be exactly. seeing a. Uh, an, an enormous acceleration of the global climate uh, threat, uh, global yes. warming at that point. Yes, exactly. So, so the um, when when the energy, so the latent heat is basically the, the stored heat. It's the heat um, that goes into a phase change. For example, the heat going into changing, you know, the solid ice to to liquid water, and the heat to melt a kilogram of ice, for example. Um, slightly below zero to slightly above zero where it's water, um, that heat, if applied to liquid water, would raise the temperature about 80 degrees Celsius. 80? So that, 80? Yeah, yeah, so that kilogram of water, kilogram of ice becomes basically a kilogram of water, and then that temperature, you know, the energy that goes to melt that ice into the water now, when it's heating up that kilogram of water, it would raise it to 80 degrees Celsius. So it's it's a huge, you know, of course, the ice is at the surface, and, you know, the volume isn't comparable to the amount of water overall, you know, as you go down in depth. It's just the surface. But the surface water, yes, that would raise, that 
that would happen. But of course, there's a lot of mixing and stuff, so we wouldn't see that temperature. See, you know, in the Arctic, we wouldn't see 80 degrees Celsius temperature, water temperature in the Arctic. We'd see, you know, that that small amount of water at the surface that came from the ice would would then dissipate and be mixed with all of the other water. But the the point is, is that the the Arctic would no longer act like as a refrigerator um, to, to the, um, you know, refrigerator to the climate system. The, the Arctic temperatures, the water temperatures would, would rise significantly. And presumably it would also have an impact on these, um, uh, these uh, belts, uh, the haline uh, ocean currents that uh, moves uh, the, uh, the, the hot, uh, moist um Temperatures uh, and, and moves it uh, to to northern latitudes and, uh, and well yeah yes I mean we've got the um, you know the the thermohaline circulation system of the ocean right with the Gulf Stream coming across the Atlantic and um, you know it's being disrupted it's it's slowed down about fifteen percent I just saw a recent uh, number fifteen percent. And, uh, you know, it's, the ice plays a big role. When there's ice in the Arctic, it plays a big role in those currents. So those currents can significantly change with, as there's less and less sea ice. And also, of course, the, the big thing is that the overall increases of temperature in the Arctic mean that the jet streams um, slow down and get wavier, and the, the troughs of these jet streams come very far south bring cold air very far south, and the um, ridges bring very warm air up into the Arctic as well. These, these jet stream waviness um, and being stuck, the patterns that they're getting are giving up these extreme weather events. And, you know, it, it, as these jet streams pass through a particular region, there are significant consequences. Just to give you an, uh, you know, uh, an example, you know, in Ottawa, Wednesday and Thursday this week, it was about zero degrees Celsius, hovered around zero. Um, you know, now it's, uh, you know, reaching minus 21 degrees Celsius, minus 30 with, with wind chill. That will be, it'll be like that for three or four days, and then it's going to go back to hovering around zero degrees. So what's happened is that the trough of the jet stream has just passed, swept, you know, it's increased and it's swept through the area where, you know, Ottawa is included, and as a result, the temperatures plummet for three or four days, and then when the, if the jet stream trough passes by or moves northward, doesn't extend down to Ottawa, then the temperatures are, are warm, the warmer, close to the zero. So we get these temperature swings, you know, and this is happening around the world, and it's just dependent on the jet stream configuration relative to your location. And, and, um, yeah, so, so this is a direct uh, manifestation of, of the greatly warming Arctic. You mentioned earlier the tipping points um, and you know, basically thresholds that once crossed will propel us to hothouse Earth, runaway global warming. Um, is it reasonable that, you know, the, 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 there's a, given the time frames involved, uh, would mitigation, you know, stopping CO2 emissions... Uh, you know, no matter how ambitious, would that be enough to prevent that uh, scenario from arriving? Well, it's absolutely required that we slash fossil fuel emissions. But the other thing that people are seriously looking at, and for a while I've been saying 
you know, we're, we're in an emergency situation. This is a climate emergency, you know, a climate crisis. Um, and more and more people, you know, I've been saying this for an awful long time, for years. I mean, more and more people are coming out and saying that, recognizing that. And, you know, in order to address an emergency, you have to take very strong measures. And really cutting back on fossil fuel emissions is, is, is vital. But there's other things that, like, there's other things that we really need to do in order to stabilize the climate. And that includes removing large amounts of CO2 from, from the atmosphere. Like, actually, you know, doing, using processes, using, you know, technologies, using different methods. We need to really reduce CO2 levels in the atmosphere. And also, I've been saying we need to look at ways to cool the Arctic by via solar radiation management. There's a very interesting technology called um, iron sulfate aerosols, and this is the idea of, of of seeding the air with this these iron salt aerosols. And they do a large number of things, like the iron seeds the ocean, stimulates phytoplankton blooms. The the aerosols um, reflect some sunlight to cause cooling. And there's lots of other pro- beneficial processes of this, this uh, technique. It's just one idea. I mean, there's, we gotta, we've got to look. We need to put resources into, to, into doing this. And declaring a climate emergency is, 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 is really the first step. It, it's really, you know, get people, get countries, get governments on board to really take this problem seriously. Right now they're not. They're still subsidizing the fossil fuel industry, you know, in huge, huge ways. Paul Beckwith, uh, realistically, how likely is it that that humanity will take the necessary measures to prevent uh, this uh, climate catastrophe, uh, that, you, that they will embrace this as a climate emergency, as you put it, given the unsatisfactory responses to decades of uh, environmental and other uh, forms of activism? Yes. Um, there, there, yeah, decades have gone by with, with very little to, to nothing being done. So um, I think the, you know, the climate, the weather patterns are, are so disrupted and the climate is changing so quickly a lot of people you know these reports are are coming out like the ipcc report and things are getting very very serious very very dire very very quick so that's different now i mean that wasn't happening before so you know i think it's a matter of time before before there's enough critical mass of people that demand action strong action on climate you know, and more and more people are, are, are using this emergency, you know, climate change. We have a climate emergency on our hands. We have to take emergency efforts, you know, on the level of the Apollo Project or the Manhattan Project, you know, um, or the Marshall Plan. I mean, we have, to, we have to treat this really seriously or the economic cost to infrastructure, you know, I mean, our civilization, our way of life is, is, is threatened. Everything is, everything is threatened. You know, we're losing biodiversity. Species are going extinct. And, you know, I mean, the reports are very, very dire, you know, and they're getting more and more dire, you know, in all aspects of, of the Earth system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we, I, I don't think we, we have a choice. 
you know, it's just a matter of time, I think, before enough of this happens. You know, as long as people get the information as to what is causing the problem, because, you know, there's lots of misinformation out there that are attributing, you know, what is happening to things other than climate change. Like, it's just, it's what? a, it's a re re yeah. Yeah, I've heard men mention that it's related to that it's not even that CO2 isn't even the reason it has to do with the sun or, or that there's... Uh... Yeah, I know. Yes, that's, that's right. There's all of these things that are, are coming out. So, yeah, it's very it's very disheartening at times. It's very, um, you know, we're, we're just, we're not dealing with the problem. And uh, so, the, so that's the risk that it's just that the information, you know, the misinformation just, uh, you know, floods out any... Paul Beckwith, I really want to thank you for, for taking the time to, uh, to share this uh, information with our listeners. Well, thanks for having me. We've been speaking with Paul Beckwith, a climate systems scientist at the University of Ottawa. You can follow Paul's work on YouTube and on his website, paulbeckwith.net. Coming up in our second half hour, we'll be speaking to Dar Jamail, a past guest of this program. Dar is an independent journalist who made his mark as an indie media figure through his unembedded reporting from Iraq during the war launched in 2003. He's since moved to climate disruption as a focus of his investigative work and has just authored a new book, The End of Ice, focused on his travels to areas of the world affected by the climate crisis. Please stay tuned for that. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. So we're joined right now by Dar Jamail. He is the author of a new book, uh, soon to be published, uh, The End of Ice. Uh, Dar joins us uh, from uh, Port Townsend in uh, Washington State. Uh, thank you for joining us, Dar. Thanks for having me. I want to ask you, first of all, a little bit about your process, because uh, it's kind of a chicken and egg question uh, in terms of the decision to write the book. Uh, you, you mentioned something I hadn't been aware of before about your, your love of, of mountaineering and, and going out into these wild places. And uh, you, you've, you've noticed that uh, how vulnerable they've been to the impacts of, of abrupt climate disruption. Did you make the decision to write the book before or after some of those places? Well, the book, really the genesis of the book started back in 1996, uh, which is when I moved up to Alaska with the sole aim of wanting to do as much mountaineering as possible uh, and do whatever jobs I needed to do to support myself on the side. But that was my love and my passion. And uh, But right away, because of that, I was on glaciers and living up uh, almost in the Arctic Circle. I mean, Anchorage is relatively close. And um, seeing already dramatic impacts of climate change, like uh, Christmases in Anchorage going by with no snow on the ground, uh, dramatically receding glaciers. So from 1996 on, well before I even started working as a journalist, it was clear, like, oh, this is a really alarming issue. So that seed was planted, and then all through... Uh, my time in Iraq, I, I was aware of what was going on in Alaska and then, of course, around the rest of the world. And so that's, you know, that, that story persisted, of course, and that, that, that idea kind of germinated around the time when 
uh, in the wake of the BP oil spill, doing a lot of reporting on that in 2010, 2011, 2012, that I knew around then that, you know, this is again just kind of symptomatic of the deeper problem, which is climate change. And that's when I knew I, I really wanted to do a, a deeper book into this. And all the while, uh, spending more and more time in the mountains and, and again, seeing these very, very dramatic uh, impacts of the receding glaciers, the temperature changes, and what that was doing to ecosystems, et cetera. So it, it, uh, in short, it was, uh, you know, from 1996 on, it was just this, you know, kind of really persistent, uh, nagging issue really, like, troubling me that was there present throughout all that time, and then finally it, it, it came into form in this book. I was struck by some of the physical challenges you confronted climbing these mountains and negotiating the glaciers and such. All the ta- the terrain terrain you were exploring, you don't seem to approach it like some kind of macho quest to, uh, to take on a physical challenge, like a, a weightlifter seeing how much he can bench press. You seem to embrace it as a communion with the natural world. How important is it, that emphasis, in the overall point you're trying to communicate in your book? I, I, I appreciate you really teasing that out, because that really was a, a goal of mine in this book to kind of bring out that it's not a, 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 a us versus nature or, you know, that we have to conquer a mountain or overcome part of nature or something like this. It really is about communion. And, and my experiences through my own uh, time mountaineering, which I that, that's what I was doing really seriously and working as a guide, et cetera, before becoming a journalist, that uh, I kind of had that machismo and that that conquer mentality beat out of me uh, by making a bunch of stupid mistakes and and then really learning that no, the only way to really do this the right way is to get in sync with nature and and then having some very deep experiences that way and and really learning uh, really the root you know that the, the I believe the root cause of climate change is human's fundamental disconnection from nature, that, you know, at some point in our evolution, i.e., even predating the Industrial Revolution, uh, but, you know, turning nature into resources and commodities and trying to control nature and manipulate nature and all the while forgetting that, you know, we are of this planet and we are, you know, this you know, we can't do something to nature and pretend like it's not going to affect us. We, we don't exist without insects. We don't exist without pollinators. We don't, we don't exist without the bears and the glaciers. If these things go away, we're going to go away with them. It's just uh, there's going to be a little, bit, a little bit of a lag time because of this so-called civilization we've built. But uh, the point of the book was to really, I think, kind of, you know, show when we when I went into the Amazon or went into... South Florida and look at what's happening in the Everglades. To really look closely at what we do to nature, we're very much doing direct, directly, not even indirectly, but we're directly doing that to ourselves. You open uh, the book with uh, the, uh, the the visit, or actually your return to Denali in, in the Alaska Range. It's the third most isolated and, and most prominent peak on Earth. Uh, you said you'd been there 13 years previously. Talk about the significant changes that really hit you, that, that, that are tr- particularly of note, that uh, that you noticed since you, you last uh, co- uh, conquer, conquered that mountain. Well, it... it uh... 
you know, I, I, in the book, I really get into interviewing a couple of glaciologists and talking about the mass loss of the glaciers up there. And these are, these are big glaciers. I mean, some of these are 30 and 40 mile long glaciers like the Cahiltna Glacier. Uh, and I, I get into the science and, and get into some numbers and talk about the dramatic loss of ice. But it was really some of the anecdotal evidence that hit me in the face, literally right when I flew back into base camp to start this trip in 2016 when I went back up to the book. And I, I went on a trip as a volunteer with Park Service uh, with a friend of mine, Mike Shane, who was the, the ranger on the patrol that I was part of. And he he's a seasonal ranger. He's been working up there every summer for all the years since last time I'd been up there. And he says, you know, well, you know, one thing that's amazing is we now have mosquitoes sometimes at base camp. And now we're talking about base camp being at 7,200 feet. You have to fly in on a glacier plane, land on the glacier, and then and, and you're, you know, it's nothing but rock and ice up there, and you're surrounded by high mountains, and you're about uh, 13 miles from Denali, and then you start hiking up the glacier towards the mountain. And to think of mosquitoes in a place like that is absurd, but so that really uh, shocked me. And then another piece of evidence from the same person, he said, yeah, we used to go down, well, I remember one time um, several years ago I went down to this ridge, and we hooked up and did a rock climb up the ridge while we had some time in base camp, and I went back down there again uh, last year to do the same rock climb. And the problem was now that the, the start of that rock climb uh, was now 30 feet higher up that same rock, meaning that much ice had been lost since last time my friend had gone down there to do the rock climb, meaning that's how dramatically quickly the, the, that arm of the Kilton Glacier had melted down in a very, very short amount of time, which was shocking. And then Another piece of evidence came from looking across the Cahilton Glacier from base camp, and uh, there's a mountain there called Mount Crossan, which I had climbed um, back when I lived up in Alaska. And uh, the ridge that I went up, I noticed, again, right, arriving at base camp, that same ridge I had used to climb that mountain before, which was three-quarters covered with glacier and ice, uh, now was only about, it was really only the top third that was fully covered in ice. The rest of it was exposed dirt and rock. Some of the dirt was being blown across the rest of the glacier and, and uh, making it, causing it to melt faster as well. So some pretty obviously dramatic telltale signs. Uh, up there, uh, a couple of others realizing that um, as part of a, a volunteer uh, rescue patrol with the Park Service, we now then had to, to wear helmets going up from high camp on Denali, which is 17,200 feet, up to Denali Pass at 18,200 feet. And we had to wear helmets for that section of the climb because of rockfall, which was also shocking because this is a place where the average nightly temperature is somewhere between zero Fahrenheit and minus 20 to minus 30 degrees. Uh, and now you're having to worry about rockfall, meaning that melting is happening enough even up that high that those temperatures are being impacted on some days to where you have to worry about rock falls. So those are just a few examples. Mm. You mentioned a, a Glacier National Park. Um, in 1850, as you states in the book, it contained 150 glaciers and covered 100 square kilometers. Today, it's only 14 and 15 square kilometers of ice coverage. Uh, so that's an 85% loss. Um, well, 100 you used to have 150, and now there's uh, only 26 glaciers. 
could you comment on i mean other than that spectacular loss of ice i mean like the 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 the, the, the impacts that spill from that I went out with Dan Fagri there, who is the lead glaciologist in the park. He's a, a USGS employee there. He's been in the park for more than a couple of decades. And uh, he talked about, along with the loss of that amount of ice and glaciation, you look at dramatic impacts to entire ecosystems, which I go into detail in the book because I found it to be very important. I didn't know about it, and I think a lot of other people weren't aware of it, that basic common sense things that start to play out that when you really start to consider what this means. So glaciers, for example, uh, are essentially turned mountains into water towers to where if, for example, when you go through the summer and then the summer rains end and then there's, there's going to be a glacier and a snowpack that's there to provide water for all those valleys and the ecosystems and the animals and the plants that depend on it, and then as those glaciers melt away, though, and you lose that, then you're going to have extended periods towards the end of each summer where there's not going to be enough water available to provide for those things that I mentioned. And so how are they going to live there? Uh, same with forests. And so we look at, for example, what's happening in Montana, and this happened in Glacier National Park and around there for the last couple of years, that uh, there's, there's increasing numbers of wildfires, and they're lasting longer and they're wide, more widely spread. And this is one reason why, because there's just simply less water in the water towers, which the mountains are, are from an ecosystem perspective. So that's one example, not even to speak of. They regulate uh, stream temperature, for example. So there's certain trouts, like the bull trout in, in uh, um, Glacier National Park, that they need the water temperature to be a certain degree, and if there's less glacial water going into those streams, those streams are going to warm up, and you're going to lose that habitat for that particular trout. And then what happens to the things that eat those trout, i.e. bears or other things like that, well, then they're going to be affected. And so you have these cascading effects that go all the way through the ecosystem just from losing a glacier that most people are uh, uh, generally aware of. It's not just losing ice, it's losing everything else that depends on that. And it, again, reaffirms or sort of reminds us how deeply interconnected all of these systems are. And, of course, we're a part of that, too. Mm. Now, move, moving right along, there's uh, also the chapter where you talk about uh, ocean impacts uh, in the Gulf of Alaska. Uh, uh, among the, the changes we're seeing in the, the, the warmer water uh, in the 1970s, you mentioned that there was a biological shift just stemming from a two degrees Celsius change in water temperature. And, you know, in, in more recently, in 2016, you, you, you claim that in some spots the, the Gulf warmed up by a, a breathtaking 15 degrees Celsius above more than normal. Could you comment on those impacts, the, the impacts that's having on the ecosystem? Yeah, that was another thing that really shocked me. Uh, of, of, of that part of the, my research for the book of having, you know, I, many listeners might have heard of the Pacific Ocean blob, which is a, a massive, uh, a massive warm water that had formed in a um, kind of the northeastern region of the Pacific, and of course this affected uh, the west coast of the United States, the west coast of Canada, and then on up into Alaska. And what that caused was a major disruption in the food web to where uh, 
lot of the, the smaller fish were going away because of these temperature changes and there weren't enough available, coupled with uh, a rise in um, of certain types of uh, parasites and diseases that also went up the food chain from things that were eating them. And it's it, it simply to not get lost in the weeds of the details, it basically meant less food was going up the food chain because of this increase in the temperatures of the, uh, the ocean. And we started seeing these massive die-offs. There were, there were massive die-offs of mer seabirds uh, one spring and summer that went into the, the next winter, um, a, a massive die-offs of puffin in, around St. Paul Island, where I went for part of my book research, and then this cascaded up the food chain where there were less fish available so that the fur seals were having trouble finding enough food to eat. And then one of the more heartbreaking stories I came across in regards to this topic was going out to St. Paul Island in the Pribilofs, right in the middle of the Bering Sea, and there was such drastic impacts happening from these temperature changes in the ocean that uh, mother's fur seals would go, they're, they're, they'd, they'd give birth to their pups in the rookery on a beach, and then they'd go out into the ocean uh, looking for fish to find, to bring back and feed their pups, and they were having to go so much further try to find fish that by the time they would get back, their pups were starving to death. And that was a really obvious and heartbreaking uh, uh, piece of evidence to show us, like, this is, this is how deep the impact's going in the food web now, that even these top-of-the-chain uh, uh, fur seals were, were struggling to survive, literally, because of these disruptions in the food web. In a lot of the discourse around climate change, I find we don't talk enough about oceans. This is like 70% of the planet, and it, it's the, the oceans absorb so much of that carbon dioxide and, and so much of the heat. And, and were it not for that, I mean, we, we'd see, I, I think, as I, I think you explained in the book, we'd be seeing like a huge increase. I mean, if, I, I believe you stated that I mean, the amount of warming in, in just the last several decades that went into the oceans, if it went into the atmosphere, we'd be looking at temperatures like 79 degrees Fahrenheit warmer. Um, it, it would be actually 97. 97, have, okay. Yeah, 97 degrees warmer if the oceans were absorbing uh, the, the, the brunt. They've absorbed 93% of all the heat that we've added into the atmosphere. And if they weren't there doing that job, then our atmosphere would be 97 degrees hotter. Just in terms of an overview of, of the situation with the oceans, like you, the, the, the main thing that you would want to uh, resonate with our listeners uh, in terms of a caution in, in, in what you've ex experienced and observed? Well, the, the increasing temperature in the oceans is, you know, I, it's hard to say maybe this is the most important facet of climate change, but I, I would say it's at least one of the most important uh, the oceans have been warming dramatically uh, the last five years in a row. Each year has successively been a hottest, warmest, uh, a warmest year ever for the oceans to date, only to be succeeded by the next year. That's the track that we're on. It looks like that's going to continue. And uh, that's uh, alongside uh, another, if not the, it's certainly one of the most alarming issues of climate change, which is ocean acidification which is when the oceans are absorbing CO2 out of the atmosphere, and that's changing literally the chemistry of the oceans. And 
Uh, it's worth noting that in the, uh, all of the previous mass extinction events, uh, one of the key drivers of them was ocean acidification. And the Permian mass extinction event, which occurred roughly 252 million years ago and annihilated more than 90% of life on Earth, it was ocean acidification that was the key driver of that. And it's the same thing as when you pump huge amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere, which in this case, uh, in that case, I'm sorry, uh, back in the Permian, uh, occurred from volcanism, then the oceans do their thing and they absorb that and then they acidify and to the point where uh, life uh, goes away. And, and we have literally replicated in an extremely short amount of time, geologically speaking, the same conditions that, that happened then. And so we're starting to see that play out in the oceans now. This is why even as far back in, as 2006, there was a scientific study released that, that warned that because of climate change and pollution and loss of habitat and other things that humans were doing, that there could be no saltwater fish by 2048. And this is a 12-year, 13, now 13-year-old report. So very, very alarming things happening in the ocean. And again, you know, this is where we came from. So probably not the best idea to be treating the oceans as we are, but unfortunately, this is what happens. You know that you know they're kind of the bottom of the the refuse pile when we talk about pollution. You know the amount of pollution that's gone into them now, coupled with uh, these very very severe impacts from climate change. And what I saw working on my oceans chapters, both with sea level rise as well as what's happening to the corals, it's uh, it's it's very very alarming to say the least. Mm. Now. You, as you point out in the book, um, biodiversity is under th- threat, and and that many of the medicines uh, that that we've depended on and take for granted have their origin in these plants, and that there's a a huge treasure trove of of uh, you know medicines and and other important uh, ingredients tied up in in our tropical forests, and uh, we we don't know what we're losing. Uh, and, and, you know, the, that threat to our biodiversity, I, I think you really bring home, you know, like, how, how significant uh, a, a loss that is. Talk about your your journey in, in the Amazon and uh, what you what you learned about how climate change is impacting in th- that ecosystem. Yeah, I had the real honor and privilege to get to go to Camp 41, which is part of a research project founded by Dr. Thomas Lovejoy, um, back in the 1960s, and what they did is basically take, excuse me, uh, different parts of the rainforest that had been sectioned off by, by roads or, or growth or, or whatever reasons, and they called them forest fragments, and they started studying what happened in these, frag- in these fragments because this is literally what's happening to forests around the entire globe as cities grow, as development starts reaching into more rural areas, et cetera. And, you know, what, what does that do to the trees? How does that impact wildlife, et cetera? And so I got to go into Camp 41 and spend time with a bunch of research biologists in there, including Lovejoy himself. And he was the one who really made it clear to me that, you know, we – how, how precious the Amazon is for, for so many reasons. I mean, for example, there, was a, there had been a research expedition of uh, a couple of dozen scientists that went out in a new part of the Amazon that they hadn't studied before. 
and they spent one month there. And in one month, they had already discovered, uh, they had found more than 80 new species, from plants to fish to a crab to uh, a couple of new bird species. So what Lovejoy said, using that as an example, he said, look, with the amount of devastation that we're doing to the planet, and yet we don't even know what's all here yet. And, and using the, the Amazon as a prime example, we already know for a fact, like, how many of our pharmaceuticals, painkillers, et cetera, come directly from herbs and other things found in the rainforest or from, from a frog or a vine, et cetera. And yet we're wiping things out so fast in a way that, as he put it, this is a biological library, the Amazon rainforest, and we're just yanking books off the shelf and burning them before we even know what's in them. We haven't even opened them yet. And that, that is, I think, the most succinct way to put the imperative that, that these areas have to be protected because uh, not just for their own sake, but, I mean, if we can't just look at it from a natural perspective and see the value in that in itself, which I think is paramount, but even for our own survival, it's just, it's just pure, utter madness to go in and start taking out these areas uh, uh, where it's, it's, uh, one of, it's the most biologically diverse area on the planet, and it's going away before our very eyes, and, and uh, that should be alarming to everyone. And uh, of course, uh, one of the most alarming points of all is uh, the um, you know when we see the uh, the ice at the poles uh, melting, when we see you know the impacts on these uh, the belts, these hayline belts that uh, carry uh, you know warm water to to colder areas, and, and just sort of help balance out the planet. When we consider the uh, <laughs> that there, there there's all sorts of uh, runaway and uh, positive feedbacks coming from. Uh, uh, methane being released from these northern, uh, uh, you know, from the the hydrates, uh, you know, up in the, these northern areas and in the Siberia and um, uh, Greenland and such. <laughs> Maybe you could, because uh, I, I think as you you started to write about that stuff, I mean, it it, it seemed to leave you feeling quite uh, despondent <laughs> when you know you're faced with well, like you haven't seen the last of it. C could I get you to comment? more on uh, that that, uh, that ultimate coup de grace that seems to be uh, coming down with the end of the ice um, at the, the, um, in, in the Arctic and Antarctic. That, well, I, I, I went up to Utskiagvik, uh, the town formerly known as Barrow, which is the northernmost incorporated village uh, in uh, the United States, in Alaska anyhow. And uh, it, uh, I went up there to do research for my chapter on permafrost and methane, and uh, interviewed a, a few experts up there as well as talked to a bunch of elders uh, to get anecdotal evidence of the changes they'd seen just in their lifetime. And, you know, to give you an idea of how rapidly we've lost the sea ice and, and probably how little time there is left to have any kind of summer sea ice in the Arctic, which is very alarming, I, I interviewed uh, Wes Aiken who is the, the elder of the village uh, at the time. He's 93 years old. He said, look, I grew up on a little, in a little house right on the edge of the water here. And even in the summer, I remember sitting in that house in July and being able to look out and see the edge of the sea ice, meaning it was maybe maybe 10 or 15 miles offshore. And, and when I was speaking with him, uh, which was summer of 2017, uh, the sea ice was, 
uh, between 180 and 200 miles offshore. Hmm. So that gives you an idea how dramatically it's changed. And what's particularly worrisome about that, which you, you touched on, is that uh, in the permafrost that goes is in the shallow seabed underwater of the Arctic Ocean, as that sea ice recedes, that warmer, that water is going to warm up that much faster. Instead of the sunlight being reflected up back into space by the sea ice, it's going to go directly into the water and warm it, which then causes the sea ice to melt faster. It's the best known runaway feedback loop with climate change. But then as that water warms up, that subsea permafrost within which is frozen methane hydrates is also going to melt, and then that methane is being released. And bizarre, there's been countless scientific studies on this already. Natalia Shakova has written several, which I cite in the book, and uh, are warning about huge methane events. And methane is a greenhouse gas, just like CO2, except in a 10-year time scale, it's 85 times more potent of a greenhouse gas. So it's, uh, it's very, very worrisome that this is happening. And then simultaneously on land, as the permafrost is thawing out faster and faster, it too is releasing both CO2 and methane into the atmosphere. So these two things happening in the, in the Arctic are, I think, two of, you know, really two of the most foreboding warning signs we have that as those feedbacks continue and speed up, then that's when the process gets that much further out of control. And so the threat of what many people have referred to as a methane bomb, that we could have a massive abrupt release of methane coming from these seabeds, uh, many scientists uh, think this is inevitable and could happen literally at any moment, which is what Natalia Shikova has written about, um, and, and others who are maybe a little bit more conservative in their predictions still say, look, methane is being released, and we do see a positive upward trend, and this is certainly something that we need to be very, very concerned about. Now, Dar, I... Um I think we're probably going to have to let you go now, but I, I want to remind our, our listeners that your book is going to be published uh, as of January 15th, and uh, it, it, it's, it's, it takes a very different and I think refreshing look at the whole manner in which we approach this uh, climate change uh, predicament that we're faced with. Um, so I will uh, I'll, I'll let to our, our listeners uh, dig it up on their own. Uh, so but uh dar thanks so much it's a it's a great book and uh, i know that you've been a, a big inspiration to me as somebody who's been involved in uh, independent uh, media for some time i mean from the time you did your uh, work in iraq and and through the climate dispatches uh for truth out and and this book is is certainly a, a welcome addition to that legacy so thank you so much my pleasure thanks for having me on we were speaking with Dar Jamail. His book, The End of Ice, is published by The New Press in New York. It is available for purchase as of January 15th. For details, visit Dar Jamail's site, darjamail.net. That's D-A-H-R-J-A-M-A-I-L.net. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.